Okay, let's go ahead and get started with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our Father, we do come now before you, bowing low in our hearts to humble ourselves before you and ask for your spirit to move in our hearts and to show us the truth that comes out of Scripture. Father, help us to understand and comprehend it. Help us to be amazed, Lord, at the things that are written here by Daniel that are pertinent to things that have happened in history, things that are yet to happen. Father, help us to incorporate these things into the way that we think about the world, the way that we think about your sovereignty and the way that you rule, the way that we even live our own lives, Lord, under that sovereignty. And so, Lord, I thank you for the scriptures, and I thank you for the body of Christ, these people who come week after week to gain understanding of your, your scriptures. Father, we, uh, we're dependent upon you to illumine our minds and show us the truth. So we ask that you do it now for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is week number 60 in our study of the book of Daniel. We're over in chapter 11. And as I've said previously, I believe chapter 11 into chapter 12 details uh, a time in history that started with the Persian capture of the Babylonian kingdom, goes all the way up until Antiochus Epiphanes IV, um, who came against Israel and did heinous things. And then uh, I believe that's the first 34, 35 verses of chapter 11, and then the tenor changes, and we go um, in verse 35 and 36 and beyond into what I believe is a second time in history, which is yet future, which is what Christ called the Great Tribulation. And so we'll, when we get there, we'll see why I believe that, that the, in one verse the scripture can jump thousands of years, but I believe it'll be pretty clear that there is a significant change in the activity that's going on. Now, we've covered the first six verses of this chapter. Um, at the beginning, we see the, the Persian um, kingdom take the Babylonian kingdom, and then uh, it talks about uh, one of the kings of Persia uh, invaded Greece, and we detailed how that did happen in history, uh, tried to take Greece, um, a series of wars, um, from 492 to 449 BC, in which ultimately the Persians were defeated by the Greeks. Greek was a minimal country at that time, but yet when you're trying to fight one so far from home, uh, it's difficult to win, and so the Persians lost. And then um, we looked at um, a great king arises, that's Alexander the Great in verse 3. In verse 4, his kingdom is split into four parts. And then from that verse on, what we really have is the wars that happen between the Seleucid Empire uh, in what we now today call Syria and also the Ptolemy, which is out of Egypt. And so this, the, the next really 15 verses or so are about conflicts that happen between those two, um, really, empires. You remember there were four empires that came out of uh, the Greek Empire, but the one in Macedonia and the one in Asia Minor called Pergamon, 
those are more minor um, in, in terms of power and rain, but the Syrian and the Ptolemy um, are the two powerful um, empires of those days, and they warred often. And so that's what we'll look at today. I want to begin in verse 7, and we'll go as far as we can, as fast as we can, to try and get through all these wars. But the thing I want you to keep in mind is that what the angel is doing, there's a book that is written. He calls it the book of truth. It's probably a scroll. And he is reading from the book of truth to Daniel what is going to take place over the next about 300 years. And so, you know, Daniel doesn't know the people, doesn't know the names. The angel doesn't give him the names of many, but of a few he does. But I, I believe that we can figure out who this is by looking at ancient history and the records that we do have from these times. But um, the thing to realize is that what these are minute details that are happening in the lives of real people in real nations that we have chronicled in history. Yet the angel is reading these details hundreds of years before they happen. And so the thing that we ought to keep in mind, they're probably in the same book written things that are going to happen during our age and our time. The angel doesn't give them because that would have taken volumes to do. But he gives Daniel enough that we can be sure that God is sovereign, has a plan, and that he's working that plan, even though men have volitions and they take actions and they do what they want to do, they do as they please, and they result in consequences, yet it's all under the sovereign rule of God. It's all under the plan that's written in the book. And that was true in these times, and I believe it's true today. There's, why would there be any difference between us today and these people that lived thousands of years ago? I, I don't, I mean, God hasn't changed. The book of truth was already written. Why would it not contain things that happen in our day and time? So that ought to shape the way that we think about the world in which we live. So we'll, we'll walk through these details so you can see how precise and how accurate history matched up to what God had written in the book of truth. Because that's really the way it works, right? God has a plan and it is unfolding in human history. So beginning in verse 7 of chapter 11, but one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and he will deal with them and great and display great strength and their gods with their metal images and with their precious vessels on silver and gold he will take into captivity to Egypt and he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south but he will return to his own land his sons will mobilize and, ass and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through, that he may again wage war upon the very fortress. The king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. 
Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up, and he will call t cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. So you have all these pronouns, right? In, in these, and, and you, you have to work through the details to figure out who's doing what. And you remember, no names are given here, right? We just have the king of the north and the king of the south. King of the south being the Ptolemy reign coming out of Egypt. King of the north being the Seleucid reign, which comes out of what we call Syria today. It's really more than Syria. It also goes down into what would have been Persia, what would have been the Mesopotamia, uh, all the way up to India, all of that controlled by the Seleucid Empire. And then Egypt and um, westward of Egypt, controlled um, by the Ptolemy, but also at times they controlled Palestine, where Israel was. Um, all the Gaza Strip and all that we see in the history, in the headlines today, all of that controlled by Ptolemy most of the time until the Seleucids ultimately take it. So we'll walk through this. We're kind of jumping in the middle here in verse 7, and you see, but one of the descendants of her line, and her goes back to verse 5. You'll remember this uh, her is Bernice, who was the son, uh, was the daughter of Ptolemy II, who was wedded to the second Seleucid king, Seleucus II, intermarriage so that they can have some semblance of getting along with one another. But you'll remember last week we looked at that um, Seleucus had a previous wife, uh, Laodice, and she didn't like the fact that she had been put out and that Ptolemy's daughter had been married to her husband. So she formed a conspiracy against her husband and his new wife. Uh, both of them died in the conspiracy. And about that same time, her father, which would have been Ptolemy II, also died. And so all three of those involved in that um, trying to make a, an arrangement, Ptolemy, his daughter, and also Seleucus, all three die about the same time. So that undoes this time of peace. And so we move into the next verse, and you can see, but one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place. Okay, her line is clearly Bernice, but it's not talking about children that she had. And I'll show you why you can be sure of that. If you look a little later in the, um, let me see. Where is this at? In their enemy fortress of the king. Somewhere it talks about their roots. Is it in seven? Sorry, I'm just not seeing it. I know it's there. As I stand here in silence trying to find it. Hmm. Yeah, a branch from her roots. Oh, sorry. This is 
This is why I can't find it. The NAS does not say that. It just says one from her line. But if you have an ESV translation, the ESV, which you must have, says branch from her roots. So you can see, all right, if it's coming from your roots and it's not coming from you, it's coming from your father. And so this is Bernice's brother who is causing this. So they're both born of Ptolemy, and maybe that's why he invaded, because his sister and her husband had been killed. And so now he's a little upset, and so he's going to invade. So, but one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, that's in Ptolemy's place, okay? And he will come against their army and enter the fortress, and here's how you can know it's Ptolemy, of the king of the north. So it's the south attacking the north, because they're going all the way to the fortress of the north. And so this is Ptolemy's son. This would be Ptolemy III attacking the new king of the north. And so, and he displays great strengths. And you'll notice that he wins this war because it says, and also there are gods with their metal images and with their precious vessels of silver and gold will be taken into captivity. And this is one of the few places where we get specificity in this passage to Egypt. So this is the south attacking the north and taking all their treasures back to Egypt. And so, um, and, he, and then at that point, he refrains from attacking the north and that'd be without, um, for good reason, because he's defeated them and he's taken all their gold and silver and precious jewels. So there's no reason to go attack them anymore because they're penniless. And this particular king um, was Ptolemy III. And when he got back to Egypt, he erected a monument to himself, really. Um, the monument is um, one that you can go look at today, actually. Um, it's, it's you know, in ruins, but nevertheless, it's still there. Um, and it's um, marmoral adalutaeum, um, which was an inscription, really, of look at all the lands that I have taken. I took Mesopotamia, I took Persia, I took Syria, all of these lands, uh, Susiana, which is where the city of Susa was that we've looked at in the past, is where... Um, Daniel is when he gets this vision. Um, so all of these areas that he had taken, he put in an inscription and made a monument to himself. And that's what the verse says, right? Um, that he um, has taken all the, the valuables. There's no reason to attack this, the north anymore. And so he makes a monument to himself and just stays at home and refrains from attacking them for the next some odd years. Now, the problem with that is, is that he's left the Seleucids, you know, desolate. And so they don't particularly like that. And so in the next verse, in verse nine, when it says, then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, 
but will return to his own land. The latter there being the Seleucids, the king of the north, enters the king of the south area, but then he returns home. Why would you return home if you're attacking? Because you get defeated. And so there is well chronicled in history where um, this guy Antiochus III, who was the Seleucid king, invaded Egypt and was pushed back and wasn't able to take any territory, um, wasn't able to conquer anything. And so that particular attack happened around 240 BC. Okay, so you have peace for a few years until you get to verse 10. And so, um, sorry, um, that was Seleucus III, not Antiochus. Um, where in verse 10 it says, his sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through that he may wage war up to the very fortress. So this is the, the sons of this king who was defeated now going back to the south, again invading the south. And um, you notice it says that he has a large army. And if you read the history, the reason why they were able to overcome the Ptolemies at this particular time is because Ptolemy had been leaving in peace and did not have a strong enough army. Now, the Seleucids, it's like always, the poor people are going to fight, right? Because they don't have anything to lose, whereas the rich people are in their ease. And so, again, that happens in, the, in this part of history where the north invades the south, goes all the way up to their very fortress. Now, it's, it is chronicled in history that Seleucus II, who is the one who attacked and wasn't victorious, had two sons. His oldest son was killed in a battle in Asia Minor, but his younger son is the one who's waging this war against the south. And this is a guy known as Antiochus the Great. He's Antiochus III, and he reigns for a good number of years, um, 25 years or so in the Seleucid Empire, and he does war against a lot of different people. And the first one that he wars against is the king of the south, against Ptolemy. And he takes him and, uh, you know, overruns the city. You can see that all the way up to the fortress. They don't take the fortress because that's very difficult to do. But um, they do take a lot of the land of the Egyptians. And this is where they take, um, they, they do not go into Gaza and Israel and Judea at this time. Okay, they will later, but at this time, they do not. And so, again, this is Antiochus III, who's known as Antiochus the Great, invading the south, the, invading Egypt. And then you'll notice in verse 11, then the king of the south, which would be one of the Ptolemies, will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north, 
Then the latter, which would be the king of the north, because he's listed in latter, will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. Okay, so this is the, the king of the south now coming back and beating Antiochus III and defeating him and again um, looting them, taking all that they have, um, very proud. Um, and as they're taking captives, he also killed tens of thousands of them just for the spite, just because they were opposed to him. And so, you know, a horrendous slaughter. And verse 12 says, you know, he exalts in his own heart, or he's, his heart is lifted up. So he's very, very proud about what he's done, even though it's been a horrendous time in, in history. And then you'll notice in verse 13, um, sorry, we looked at 13. Um, yeah, the middle of 13. So he'll, the king of the north, so this is again the Seleucids. They're, the Seleucids raise these big, big armies, and each time the army gets bigger and, because they get defeated. And so this time, you notice in 13, for the king of the north will raise a greater multitude than the former, after an interval of some years. So this some years is actually 13 years later. Antiochus III, the Great, comes back against the north. And you'll notice um, that there are more than just the north coming against Egypt. Um, after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. So during those 13 years, he was able to raise a great army from all the different provinces that the Seleucid Empire had, and they're well equipped. Meaning, you know, they didn't have cannons and stuff that we think about, but they had catapults and lots of arrows that would be on fire that they could shoot into the enemy and those types of things. They're well equipped to fight. And so um, you'll notice in verse 14, we have kind of this aside that the, the angel tells Daniel, now in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. So it's not just the Seleucids. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Now, this angel is talking to Daniel, right? And as we've seen in all of these visions, they're specifically Jewish. So when he says, your people, he's talking about Daniel's people, his ancestors, the, um, no, his descendants, the ones that would come after him, um, that they rise up against Egypt and revolt and yet they're unsuccessful. And they're put down by Egypt. So Egypt at this time 
is controlling Judea, Israel, Gaza, all of that controlled by the Egyptians. And the, the Jews just simply want to be free from this oppression of the Jews, of the Egyptians who would be taxing them and you know, taking their goods, taking their, the food that they grew, all of these things that the Egyptians would be taking from the Jewish people. So they revolt, and yet they're unsuccessful. And we know that um, leading up into the um, Hasmonean dynasty that comes maybe 30 years later, that there were a lot of revolts by the Jewish people trying to get free. And so that's what is spoken of here in verse 14. So not Ptolemy and um, the Seleucid warring, but the Israelites trying to get free from the Egyptians unsuccessfully. You notice it says they fall down, so they're not able to get free. And it's kind of interesting. He says, to fulfill the vision. Now, not can't be specific about what that is, but is that the Jews having read what is written in Daniel and trying to make it happen? Because, you know, Daniel clearly says that they'll be free ultimately, but don't know. But it could be that. So we, we keep on going, and you look in verse 15, and you see that the king of the north will come, cast up, up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. Okay, this is the Seleucids ultimately defeating Ptolemy in Egypt, overrunning them, decimated, defeats the Egyptians. And so at this time, the Seleucids are the strong in, you know, in, in all the world, really. And so and very proud, as always, and they've overcome the um, Egyptians. Now, it is well chronicled that Antiochus the Great did in fact do that, that he overran Egypt, that he took them. At the same time that he did that, he took Judea and all of Israel, so they fall no longer under the Egyptians, hooray, but they're under the Seleucids, who are even worse than the Egyptians. So again, they're very oppressed at this time. All of this taking place right around 200 B.C., 204, I believe the exact date is, of when the forces of Antiochus the Great overtook Egypt. Now, because he was able to do, do that, um, you notice in verse 16, but he comes against him who will do as he pleases and no one will be able to withstand him. And he will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. So this is Antiochus III, the Great, coming into Judea, the beautiful land. Uh, some of your translations may say the glorious land. Most agree that that would be Israel, that would be Jerusalem, that would be Judea, those areas around um, the city of Jerusalem. And so Antiochus III comes and stays there for a while. 
Okay? Again, something worse is coming. And we'll see that not this week, but next week. But this is bad enough that the guy who overran you is now staying. He's not going back to his Seleucid Empire. He's staying in yours. So very oppressed, um, clearly not what they wanted. In the next verse, the whole world changes dramatically. Okay, notice in verse 17. This is, again, still Antiochus III, the Great. He will set his face to come with power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of woman to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Okay, so this is the king of the north. Antiochus III, the Great, coming to Ptolemy and offering him peace. And just to seal the peace, he's going to give Ptolemy his daughter in marriage. Now, that daughter's name is one that you'll recognize. Her name is Cleopatra. This is not the Cleopatra that you think about later, right? That's Cleopatra the fourth. But this is the first one. This is where Cleopatra gets introduced from the Seleucids into the Ptolemies. And so Cleopatra, the daughter of Antiochus the Great, marries Ptolemy. And Antiochus the Great thinks, well, she'll help me overtake Egypt and reign it. Not so much. She likes her husband more than she likes her father. That's what it says, right? That in verse 7, um, verse 17 at the end, but she will not take a stand for him, meaning her father, or be on his side. So she takes a stand with her husband, who is Ptolemy. So this is where, again, the divisions continue, right? But there is this semblance of peace because Antiochus the Great doesn't want to invade his own daughter's country. So there's this semblance of peace. But he's not done invading. You look in verse 18. So his daughter's now married to Ptolemy. So there's this kind of peace. And the question that comes to my mind is why, after all these years of fighting, would the Seleucids want to make peace with the Egyptians. And the reason is because Rome was beginning to rise in power. And the rumblings of the Roman kingdom were beginning to happen. The Romans at this time had already taken the Macedonian kingdom, which of course was one of the four that came out of Alexander the Great. They had not yet taken Asia Minor, which is where the Pergamons were, and so that's what Antiochus the Great goes for. So you'll keep reading, and in verse 18, then he, again, Antiochus III the Great, will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many, but a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So what 
what history chronicles is that Antiochus the Great, after defeating Egypt, taking all of Palestine, then began to move northward. And as you go northward, you come to Asia Minor. Again, along the coast, because that's where all the people live. And Asia Minor is where the Pergamon kingdom is, still, reign, still being one of the four that came out of Alexander the Great's. And so Antiochus begins to surround them, pretty much gets them surrounded, and then intends to invade Greece. Now, Rome is not Greece, right? But the Romans had begun to patrol and have ships and all in the Grecian waters. Greek, at this time, again, is a minor country. It is not a significant power. Um, so the Romans had begun to want Greece for themselves. Okay, but Antiochus, again, along the coastline, so taking Asia Minor along the coastline, and then the next coast that you come to would be Greece. And so he then wants to take Greece. So he invades Greece. But the Romans push him back and defeat him. And because they defeat him so decidedly, they say, we want you to repay us for all that it cost us to fight a war against you. So, and they take his land. They, at this time, then take Pergamon. And, of course, we know that it won't be long. This is, again, after 200 B.C. until they begin to march into um, the Palestine area. So they want all his land, which they take, and they want reparations for the war that they had to fight against him. So, I mean, he has no choice but to give him his land and to pay them. So he begins to head home because he's defeated. And on his way, he invades a Persian temple trying to take all their wealth so he can then pay the Romans is what his plan was, although it doesn't work. And he gets killed in that Persian raid. And so Antiochus the Great dies a miserable death, really. I mean, he reigned and was great for a long time, but he dies defeated without any money and trying to steal money so he can pay his debts. And he's unsuccessful. So the Seleucid army just goes home, defeated. The Romans now are rising in power. They've defeated the greatest kingdom on the planet at this time. They defeated the Seleucids. Now, that doesn't mean there's an end to it. There will be more wars between um, these factions, but nevertheless, it was a decisive victory. And this is what, um, when in verse 18, it says, and he will t stop, put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn, meaning he'll defeat him, he'll request money, he'll take his land from him. And that's, again, the Romans doing this. So you see in verse 19, so he will turn his face toward the fortress of his own land. And then notice, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. So the end to Antiochus the Third, the Great. 
Now, the problem with that is that, and we're going to stop here today, is that it leaves a vacuum of no leadership in the Seleucid Empire, which gives the opportunity, and we'll talk about this next week, for one known as Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, to come and to be in power, who is the one that performs the abomination of desolation in Israel. And we'll see that chronicled right here in this chapter where um, this angel is speaking to Daniel and talks about the very same thing that we saw back in chapter 8, where, Anti where Antiochus IV Epiphanes comes against Israel. And, so we'll, and, and why he does that is given in these next verses. So 20 through 34 is all about Antiochus IV. So we'll begin to look at that next time. And again, Antiochus IV is much, much worse than Antiochus III, even though Antiochus III was domineering and proud and boastful. Antiochus IV is worse. The scripture calls him a despicable man. So that's where we'll pick up next time, um, if the Lord wills. And again, I'm, I'm trying to go through this fairly quickly because you'll get bored to tears. But um, what you see and what we need to recognize is that these things that were work, written in the book of truth played out in history to the very details. I mean, you can, if you, you take the time and you go in and study, you can figure out who the pronouns are, you can figure out who's invading who, and you can match it up to what happened in history. It's just down the line exactly as the angel reads to Daniel. And, and it'll be the same with, um, with Antiochus Epiphanes. And so, Here's my point. As it jumps to the end of the age, which I believe it does, why would we not think it's going to happen exactly like the Book of Truth says it is? Why would it be anything different when you see so much fulfilled in precise detail? Why would the last half not? So that's the problem I have with various interpretations is that they just say that's not going to happen like that. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so consistency, right? So that's where we'll stop today. Thanks for your time.